Thanks for listening to the Tribe Church Podcast. Our prayer is that these episodes bless and equip you in your apprenticeship to Jesus. Our goal as a community is to become more like Jesus and to offer Him through our lives to those around us here in Austin, Texas. More like Jesus, more for others. For more on our church, check out atxtribe.org. God bless. Well, for more than uh, about a year and a half now, actually, for, for the Austin Christian Church, the staff of the Austin, Austin Christian Church, which is the north side and the east side and tribe here, um, all the slides and stuff will be on here if you need them. Uh, we have been wrestling with a question, and essentially the question is, what do we long for each Christian in our church communities to understand and to experience in their faith. Or another way of putting it might be, if someone became a Christian here in tribe, in about a year's time or so, what would we hope would be the foundations of faith for them? What would we know, like, and this is what they have been taught, and this is also what they've experienced here in community. And essentially, after about a year and a half of discussion and prayer and planning, uh, we've landed on four areas that we're going to focus on over the next two years. So we're going to take them at about two areas a year uh, in chunks. We're going to focus really specifically in our midweeks, in our sermons, in our small groups, uh, on these areas. We're going to try to saturate the community as much as possible. Uh, What we're doing is we're developing out of this time, out of this next two years, we'll have some study guides and some video material and some other resources that will be available for anybody who comes in and does become a Christian. We have some stuff to walk them through. Does that make sense? So what are these four areas? Uh, Knowing God is one area, pretty foundational, I would say, right? Identity in Christ. Who are you in Christ? What does Christ call you to? Living in community. Man, this is uh, rich, very rich, very countercultural here in the West, but it's, it's calling us, the scriptures are calling us to living in community. And then missional life. And so again, when I say two years, we're going to kind of take it in chunks. We're not going to, every sermon series will not be knowing God in the first part of this year, but we're going to talk about knowing God in different ways this first part of this year. Does that make sense? So for instance, uh, next month, we're going to be starting a series called Unhurried, and it's all about our, our lives in the patterns that God calls us to, the rhythms and patterns that God calls us to. We're not calling it knowing God, but it's going to be about knowing God. Does that make sense? So we're going to focus on that first half of the year. Second half of the year, we'll be taking on identity in Christ, and then 2023, we'll be moving into the other areas. So this month, I'm going to just graze at the top of all four. So we're going to hit knowing God and identity in Christ and life in the community and life on a mission the next four Sundays. But we're just, we're just like swimming in the shallows at this point, okay? Everybody with me? Doing okay? All right, why is this important? Well, because we are living in an increasingly secular and increasingly post-Christian culture. And that requires us as a Christian community to be increasingly intentional increasingly explicit about our formation and our training within the church culture. Why? Because the influence of the world and its belief system, its relativism, that, hey, you do you, whatever your truth is, it's all good. It's, it's secularism, that, the, you know, God is kind of a myth. It's not really, it doesn't really matter. It's old. It's archaic. If you're still believing in that, you obviously haven't caught up to the rest of us. It's influencing the individual, both in and out of the church. 
And if you don't know that you're influenced, let me just inform you, you're influenced, okay? Welcome. There's that for free. Um, And the influence of the church in the conversations that are happening in the world is decreasing. So the influence of this post-Christian secular world is increasing on the individual, and the, incre- and the influence of the church is actually decreasing in our culture. In a recent uh, study that was done by Barna, they did research over about two decades since about the year 2000. So I'm not even reaching back like 100 years in America or 200 years in America. This is like the last 20 years of America, okay? They found that, that practicing Christians, those that have some regular ha- habit of going to church, practicing Christians in the U.S. dropped from about 45% of the population to about 25% of the population. And half of that drop, half of those people that left, that went down, you know, that were not part of the 25 remaining, half of them went to kind of a still a belief in God, but no longer practicing. The other half just went to agnosticism, no belief in God. So there's a, there are practicing Christians are actually becoming less and less in our society. And it's not just smaller in numbers, but Christianity is actually becoming more politicized, in case you hadn't noticed, right? Um, <laughs> so we're not just, but in pop, in pop culture, Christians have really become kind of a caricature of violence and racism and ignorance and stupidity and targeted by many as part of the genesis of our systemic problems that we have here in this country. I saw in a recent Rolling Stone article just this week, I won't even go into the title, you can just Google it yourself, but just this week, and and the article was so targeted, the title was so targeted about how Christianity, particularly white Protestants, are to blame for any upcoming violence that will happen in our country. Like in the bold headline, Christians are to blame. This is Rolling Stone, this isn't like some corner of the internet somewhere, right? The truth is that few experts disagree that the predicting future in this culture of authoritative autonomy and the individualism that we live in, many believe that the statements of faith that you and I all read and maybe even talk about will become hate speech in the future. We've long seen the trend towards Europe Uh, In the West, right, in America, we're trending towards Europe religiously, is what I mean. A few months ago, Christian shared a a report with me of a Finnish Lutheran minister uh, who was detained and questioned and is currently under investigation uh, by the state for a book that, not a book that he wrote, but a book that he published, his publishing company, and put on his website a book that, uh, that that talks about kind of the biblical anthropological stance on humanity and gender and sexuality and the New Testament statements on these. And this minister is now under investigation in this Western country for crimes of hate. My point is not to alarm you or to bum you out on Sunday morning. And it's absolutely not to call us to any form of, I don't know, retaliation or whatever you might, and it's certainly not to stand in alignment with the first person who stands up and says, I'm for Christ, but doesn't behave like Christ. That's not my point. My point is that our faith is becoming less 
and less acceptable to the Western worldview. And I believe our church community should serve as a spiritual formation center where we intentionally aim our focus and our, our, our fundamental truths at the gospel message. Messages like this, messages like the truth about knowing and being known by God that is made available in Christ. Messages about the identity and freedom and grace that is yours in Christ. Messages about the beautiful, diverse community of the, the Christian family. Messages about the mission to love others. We must only be more intentional should we stand as this beautiful, peace-filled resistance in the current of chaos and anxiety and to be able to offer hope to those that are being swept away. And, and it's not to be afraid because the church has actually always flourished most under pressure, under persecution, when it's been on the fringes. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Because the kingdom of God is the only hope. It's never going away. But we've got to hold on to it. So, knowing God. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Doing okay? All right, knowing God. Augustine uh, famously said, if you understood him, it would not be God. Uh, meaning what? Meaning there is a weight and a glory to God that we must accept regarding his vastness and his greatness that we only get a glimpse of in this life. There is a beautiful mystery that we live into as we come to know God, accepting that we will never fully understand him in this life. And that's okay. It's a mystery that is good and it draws us more intimately to God through our experiences of him and in ways that he reveals himself in Christ. The point is this, knowing does not mean understanding everything. Like you can watch as many YouTube videos and Google as much as you want about God. You're never going to understand everything about God. But that doesn't mean you can't know God. For example, and if you think about it in a relationship way, uh, I know my wife. I don't always understand my wife, right? And I think she would probably say the same about me, right? We, we know each other, but we don't always understand each other. But, but knowing her draws me into wanting to understand her more. Draws, draws me into to understanding her a little bit more, hopefully along the way, right? It's going to take a lifetime, I'm sure. And as I get to know her more, understand her a little bit more, I fall more in love. It's a beautiful pursuit. How much more God? How much more this pursuit of God? How much more will it take a lifetime just to get familiar, just to get to know, just to get a glimpse so that someday we'll see it in full? How can we understand one who has no beginning and no end? Like if you want to just go on a time warp with your brain and just lose some time, just go for a drive and just think about how God has no beginning and has no end and just see what your brain does with that. How can we understand one who's outside of time and space and under no authority other than himself? Perhaps Augustine had a point, right? but we can come to know him. 
Okay, so the Greek word for knowing, and we're going to practice this one together. It's an easy one, I promise. It's called ginosko. Can you say that? Ginosko. I like the accent Christian put on it. Ginosko, right? Um, it is this idea of to know, to perceive, to feel. It's a kinesthetic experience almost. It's not just information. So in the West, we say, do you know something? And we say, yes, I can regurgitate information about that thing. But this is the idea of to know, to have experienced. In fact, in fact, uh, it is also a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse. So when in Matthew chapter 1 in the NIV, when it says, you know, Joseph did not consummate his marriage to Mary until after Jesus was born, that whole phrase, consummate his marriage, is ginosko, to know. So it's about this intimacy, this presence, this experience of knowing. Jesus would say in John chapter 14, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So the idea of knowing God is really about getting to know Jesus. Jesus came to make the Father known and, and in practicing this, his way of humanity to show us exactly who the Father is. And as we apprentice under that way, as his students of his teachings, we too come to know who the Father is. We experience the Father. We have time with the Father. There's this beautiful unveiling of God as we chase after Him. We discover more about Him. And much like a marriage or any other relationship, as we do, we fall more in love. Okay, so great. This is all still good information, but it's not really practical landing. Where, how do we do this, right? How does this look? Well, thankfully, the scriptures give us those answers, and the first earliest followers of Jesus worked this out for us. So everybody just amen, right? Good for them. Thank you. John, we're going to look here at John chapter 4. John was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. Um, I thought I had the scripture. Do I have the scripture up there too? If not, John chapter 4. Um, John was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. Uh, he, he and his brother were fishermen, him and James, and they had this uh, great relationship with Jesus. He was the longest surviving follower of the apostles, or, or the apostles, follower of Jesus. Uh, and here's what he had to say about knowing God. So this is John, probably in his 80s or so, right? He's an older man. He's lived a full life, decades and decades of following God, knowing this, this unveiling of God, learning about him, understanding a little bit along the way and being able to share that with others. Here's what he says in First John, uh, John chapter 4, in verse 7. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one, listen to this, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. 
This us is not us individually. It's us as a community. So John is saying, look, God is, he is, he is love. His, it's, it's, it's his being. It's not just his character, his personality sometimes, or his behavior every now and then. No, God is love. Love comes from the source, which is God. And all those who are born of God love others. And born of God is just another way of saying born again, one who has, has given Jesus lordship of their lives. They've had this immersion in the waters of baptism. They've come out and they've said, now I'm all Jesus's. I've been born again. He says, anyone who is born of God loves God. And he says that this knowing God is actually is actualized, it's re, the reality of it experienced is here in this one another community. It's people. It's the process of God using people that allows us to know God. The other day I watched as, uh, after church here, um, maybe a couple weeks ago, I watched as two brothers Two, not physical brothers, Christian brothers, two brothers had this conversation and I kind of was, not eavesdropping, but you know, you're kind of in proximity. So you're listening slightly, right? And I'm watching these two brothers had this conversation and they're sharing, they're talking a little bit and I didn't catch all of it, but I, what I did catch was that they were sharing about how one had offended the other. And in that offense, the other had come back and talked to him about it and said, hey, I just want to make sure that we're clear and we're understanding each other and I want there to be peace between us. And the other apologized and thanked him for bringing it up and they hugged and it was, this, it was this amazing moment. And I thought, man, there's God. That I'm seeing God. I'm seeing the reconciliation that God is in our lives. When our family was sick, with COVID and we were down, I, Mike Jurgensen brings us soup and Gatorade and uh, medicine for the kids and uh, the Prathers come by with a big box of Legos and food and the Flores come by and they, they bring food and, and man, I, I, we see the generosity of God. We see God. And I made sure to make a point of it to the boys as we're eating the food that people, I said, this is only because of the church. This is only because we know people who practice the way of Jesus. And look at what we have. Look at how God loves us. And they're eating their food. Okay, Dad, you know, like kind of getting it. But I want them to hear this is how God loves us. When you come here and you're served by the ushers and the worship team and the AV folks, some who you never even see, and the many volunteers who watch your children, you are experiencing the generosity and the grace of God. Just as much as when we come and we read the scriptures. It's all God. It's all grace. When a family opens up their home for small group in the middle of the week and they host and they say, here's some food and we cleaned up our house for you and here's the comfy pillow on the couch and I prepared a lesson to discuss to encourage your faith. You are seeing God. When you receive a hug or you borrow a car or you borrow my truck, right? Uh, when someone watches your kids so you can go out on a date night with your spouse, or when you give a hug, or you lend the car, or you go watch somebody's kids, what you are doing is displaying the love of God. This is what John is saying. You gnosko God when you are in a community where you give and receive love. Amen. No one has ever seen God 
But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Paul, in his famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, I do have the scriptures for this one. He says this, and follow along with me. It's a long read, but we'll, we'll catch it. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I can give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we know, or I know in part. I gnosko in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's making a case that all of our wisdom and insight and preaching and teaching and faithful prayers amount to nothing if we don't protect one another, if we don't honor one another, if we don't seek the good of one another, if we don't forgive one another, if we don't hope for and with one another, if we don't persevere alongside of one another. All of it counts for nothing. The whole thing we're after is knowing God. And he makes it clear that that the paramount aim that we should be taking in that pursuit is to become people who practice the way of love in community with others. He's writing to a church. This isn't just Paul riffing on some notes he doesn't know if anybody will ever read. He's writing to a community of people. Why? Because in the end, only love will exist as only God will exist. It's the, it's the greatest, he says, because you won't need faith in the kingdom of heaven someday. You'll be there. Faith won't be required anymore. You won't need hope anymore. You're there. Eternity with God. All that will remain is love. The highest pursuit that we can make is love. The capacity that we grow to be people of love will directly impact the ability we have to know God. That's what I'm trying to land on here with all that I'm saying. The capacity that we grow to be people of love will directly impact our ability to know God. 
as we choose forgiveness, as we choose patience, as we choose humility, as we choose an other-centeredness about the way we live our lives and our time and our money and our energies and our talents and the way we raise our children and the way we go to work and the way we build careers and the way we educate ourselves, this other-centered living to make God known will only come as we love people along the way. If we want to know God, we have to practice loving people. As we prepare for communion, and we're going to do communion a little differently today, a word from Jesus, which I think is appropriate, okay? Matthew chapter 7, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has some very familiar words if we just read Paul. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we have faith that moved mountains? Didn't we give great insight? I mean, God, you should have heard some of my sermons up there. It was pretty good. In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. He says, and I will tell them plainly, I never gnosko you. I never knew you. We were never in relationship away from me, you evildoer. We read this passage, we so often think about non-Christians, right? Like, okay, Jesus is speaking to those who, you know, never got to know him, and it's unfortunate they had an idea about. No, he's speaking to the Christians. He's speaking to you and me. They preach, they have faith, they, they do miracles, but they don't do the will of their Father who's in heaven. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just finished preaching about forgiveness instead of anger towards people, honor instead of lust, humility instead of judgment, love even for your enemies. So they know what the will of his Father is that he's talking about. It's to love people. There's no confusion for his audience. His Father is love, and Jesus says that the only, it's only the people who we are doing the will of, Father, will of the Father with, the woes that we are, we are loving, those are the people that he will recognize as his own. In other words, you are not identifiable as his if you're not a person of love. He's saying, I never knew you. We were never in the same family. You had the information, you could, you could share it even pretty well, but, but I never knew you. To know God is to relinquish control of who you choose to love in your life. I want you to hear that. To know God is to relinquish control of who you choose to love. I'm not saying you have to be best friends with everybody. but you have to relinquish control of who you choose to love. Who do you have a hard time loving? You got somebody. They posted something this week. You, saw, you know what I'm saying? We've all got somebody in mind. But Jesus says, hey, to know him is to relinquish control of who you choose to love. The capacity that we grow to be people of love will directly impact our, 
our ability to know God. Jesus is calling us to obey. And, and this for us, I think, means something, a shift in our worldview, is that we, we can no longer privatize our relationship with God. And many of you have gone through this, you've wrestled through this idea of kind of the, this is me and Jesus, right? Like I got the me and Jesus thing, me and God. And as I think about love, I'm just trying to become a nicer person today. We, gotta, you know, we can't privatize our relationship with God. It has to happen in community. This only gets worked out. You only become a person of love if, like those two brothers after church, you've offended somebody and they're forgiving you. Or they offended you and you're looking to forgive. That only happens in community. You can't read enough to become a person of love. You can't get enough insight to become a person of love. We got to bounce off each other. And it's, it's painful sometimes, but that's the way. <clears throat> that said, as I was thinking about, and this is, we're going to land in communion here, as I was thinking about, you know, where do we, what does this look like in practice? And we're a very intentional church, so if you've been with us for some time, you know we believe in spiritual formation. We believe in the practice of these disciplines of Jesus. We believe that as we put ourselves in the space where the Holy Spirit resides, it will transform us. And I was thinking about, like, well, what, what's the spiritual discipline for us in this idea of loving one another? And there's a lot, right? We pray for others. We show hospitality. We serve others. All these things are spiritual disciplines that we do that, sh- that help us love one another. But then I kind of sat there and I went, there, there is no, no greater thing that we do than the communion meal together. There is no, I mean, Jesus gets together all these people of different backgrounds and different worldviews and different approaches to God even. And he unifies all of them by breaking bread and sharing with one another, by taking the, the juice or the wine at that time and passing the cup. We were talking about in the, in the pre-meeting, you know, what's happening with congregations that pass cups right now in the COVID era? I don't know. We don't know. But we're not going to pass the cup today, okay? Don't worry. Um, but Jesus takes this meal and he makes it the, the, really the paramount experience of the community. He says, do this often in remembrance. This is, something is happening when you do this together. Now, again, we've kind of privatized communion. So we like communion that's, I get to sit in some darkness and just tell me some good insights and let me think about those things, how it applies to me. But that's never how communion was. In fact, the earliest Christians, church happened around a dinner table. And they broke bread and they passed it to one another and somebody drank a little bit too much and they went, man, Mark's drunk again. We got to talk to him, you know? And <laughs> somebody else showed up with no food and they're like, hey, come on in, we got some more. And somebody was eating a little too much and they're like, hey, you know, like relax, share. But they worked it out with each other. They practiced love with one another through the communion meal. Okay, so we're going to take communion together. So you should all have this little thing right here, right? And I want you to open up Open up the, the bread side, the little wafer. And, and this is what we're going to do. We're, we're going to have communion as a community. And so today as we take communion, I want to encourage you to keep your eyes open. Smile and look at those around you. Just take a second right now. Look to somebody who's close to you. Give a little smile, a nod. And so... Let's take the time to do this together. We're going to take the bread, okay? So hold up the bread. And if if you haven't eaten it already, hopefully you're not that hungry, just break it, break it. 
This is the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ that was broken so that we can be made whole. So that we can represent collectively Christ in the world as we love one another. Let's take the bread together. Okay, this is, this is the juice. It was wine at the time. It's juice today. It's not very delicious juice, but it's juice. It's the fruit of the vine. Again, I want you to just look around at a neighbor. Give a little cheers. Hey, cheers. Cheers to you. Cheers to you. This is the blood of Christ that purifies us, that was shed on our behalf to provide forgiveness so that we could be together in spite of all of our differences. This is the covenant that was made in love for us to be a people of love. Let's take the juice together. And now I'm going to invite you, just for a moment or so, to pray for those close by. Maybe on your left or your right. You don't have to pray with them. You can pray in silence, but we're just going to have a moment of silence to pray for one another, to think about those that we're with right now as we take communion. 